Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Before we get into this episode, we're going to check out a song by Joel's band, The End of Everything. The song's called Force Fed Lies and is available now on their EP, Things Are About to Change, on War Against Records. Welcome to episode 29. As always, you can find us on the web at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com. There you will find all the streaming information as well as all social media links. And as always, give us a follow on Instagram at enterprisehardcorepodcast. So today's episode is kind of interesting because if I'm not mistaken, I don't think this guest and I have ever, have ever actually met in person. And I think we'll have a lot of like similar overlapping stories. So it should be fun kind of talking to him. So without further ado, uh, my guest today is Joel Stanischewski. Uh, so hey, how's, everything going? Hey, how's everything going for you tonight, man? Good, good. It's uh, interesting that you made that comment about us not necessarily knowing each other, but kind of knowing each other. Because when you had sent over the request or whatever to, to talk, 
I was like, I got to know this guy, right? And you never like hinted that we knew each other. You just were kind of like, yeah, let's talk, let's talk, blah, blah, blah. And so then I was asking some friends, like, we know this, like, we all know this guy, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know this guy from Rochester. And then like the day, like, you know, two days prior, you sent me some stuff and it mentioned Daybreak. So I was like, okay, he's got to know at least who I am or what bands I've played in. So it was interesting that you kind of slow played it, whether or not we actually, you know, had run into each other at some point in time or another. Well, the funny thing, as we'll get into, is I'm pretty sure Daybreak was right before my era of when I got into hardcore and punk. Um, and but I've actually seen you mention it on on like posts and stuff recently, so I kind of had that in the back of my head. And then doing my due diligence for the research for the interview, I actually uh, uh, discogged your name, and that that band came up on there. So yeah, uh, not 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 all the other shitty bands or whatever other bands I played in that never got uh, on discogs or had a wikipedia page or Bandcamp or anything of that sort but well except for drago drago has a full pretty much everything that we ever recorded on Bandcamp. so that's another one i guess yeah now it's interesting because like thinking about us talking about discogs and Bandcamp and stuff like i don't know what i would have done for an interview in like 1995 like i would have just had to look through fanzines and like you're saying like word of mouth you couldn't have gone right. on like discogs or anything like that none, none of this stuff existed so it's 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 a topic that comes up a lot in these conversations that you know as we'll get into things are a lot different now than they were then you know so uh, um, talking about discogs real quick and uh, i'm sure we'll talk about the end of everything at some point in time um so i work in a marketing firm here in las vegas and um i'll make this story quick so that i don't ruin any future questions and stories but um, the guy who's the head of creative services for my company, um, I asked him to help us out with our layout for our seven inch. And he was like, yeah, totally. Like, I would love to do that. Totally awesome. And um, so when I was updating the thank you list, I added him to it. And he was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to be on it. I don't want to be on it. Like, I'm just, I'm just doing what you've already done just on a higher res scale. Like you designed the, the, the creative, like I'm just putting it together for you. And I was like, no, you totally hooked us up, you know? And so he kept fighting, like, no, I don't want to be on it. And I'm thinking, does he not want to be on it? Because he's just like so like humble or because he just doesn't want to be affiliated with my band in any way, shape or form. And I noticed that he, I looked the other day, I was looking up something on Discogs, like the set came across and I was like, oh, let me, let me look up myself just for shits and giggles. And I saw that he was listed on there and I mentioned it to him and he kind of got like pissed off. He was like, oh, now I'm on this website. And I'm just like, dude. <laughs> so I guess he just, I don't know if, again, I don't know if he just wants, to, is just really humble about the whole thing or if he just doesn't like my band in any way and doesn't really want to be associated with us. But I don't know, too bad now. Or maybe as I, I've gotten into in previous episodes about myself and you and I will possibly get into, I was in some bands that I would rather not be uh, associated with when I was younger because they were pretty uh, terrible uh, sonically. So <laughs> that could that could be related to it too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, um, so yeah, the, the way I like to do things is kind of like the timeline, kind of start from the beginning and kind of get to where we are now. So um, let's kind of talk about your upbringing a little bit because I know you're originally from Buffalo. So let's talk about that first. Yeah, I grew up in Sloan, New York, which is a tiny village in the edge of Cheektowaga, right against like butt up against the east side of Buffalo. Uh, my parents still live there. My sister still lives there. Um, my brother lives in West Seneca now. 
uh, I guess just your typical, you know, lower middle class family, you know, growing up in a, in a cool neighborhood, you know, um, back in when I was young, everybody like got into like skateboarding. And then a majority of the kids that I was friends with when they got into high school started getting into sports more. Uh, so that skateboarding mentality kind of went out the window. Um, so when I was going into high school, I had the opportunity to go to uh, public school, which was which would have been John F. Kennedy. Um, but I had a lot of trouble with some of those kids there because I loved, st I still love and all rock and hardcore and whatever I was into at the time, whereas everyone was kind of going more towards um, sports and athletics and you know jocks or whatever you want to call it. So it it, it kind of suited me to to go there. Uh, much better. And I think that probably inevitably helped me to become the person that I am today, I guess, whether, you, whether, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's up to the listener. So like what kind of musical interests did you have at that point? And I guess like, were you playing any instruments or anything before any of this? Or were you just kind of, you know, <clears throat> I was always trying to convince my parents to buy me a drum set. And uh, they were pretty adamant that they weren't going to for years and years. And I, I listened to my brother is about uh, what seven years older than me. And he's like your typical like headbanger dude still is and still listens, you know, Queensryche and all that stuff. So I kind of listened to some of that type of more hard rock. Uh, I was really into Striper. I still really am. I love Striper. I don't know why I love Striper so much. I'm not really religious. I mean, God <laughs> is cool and all, but I'm not like, uber Christian or anything like that, but I was always really into Striper um, and uh, started getting into more. I remember like one Christmas I woke up super, super early and my sister and I were watching like a skateboarding competition while we were waiting for my parents to wake up. And it was like um, old Soundgarden songs were playing while they were skating. And I was like, this is, these are some rad bands, you know? And I was like, kind of like remembering who it was and kept into that, you know, punk not really punk but more like thrashy metal like dri and stuff like that um and then um my brother worked at office max and um one of his co-workers was joe smith the original guitar player of snapcase and uh my brother came home and uh, at the time i remember him telling me so you listen to nirvana so you might like this band this guy i work with and i was just like yeah, okay whatever and so he gives me this demo, this Snapcase demo, and it's been in my possession, you know, for 30 years ever since. And I, uh, you know, I guess that kind of was my introduction to local bands because I didn't even know what a demo was. Like, what is the, what's a demo, you know? Right. And uh, that kind of got me into it. And uh, the people that I, I skated with um, and, and knew through that, uh, especially um, Joe Garlop, who uh, played in a lot of uh, Buffalo hardcore bands. Um, him and I lived like one street apart. So we went to high school together. Um, we skated together and he would always, you know, just give me dubs of tapes of bands and got me into local bands. And I remember um, would have been like early 92. We were out skateboarding and Bill Page came by and was like handing out flyers. And again, I never saw a flyer for a show. And it was like a, a photocopied picture a, a page from a comic book and final notice which was banned at the time was playing with like support and against all hope at like the scrapyard and i remember like asking my mom if i could go and she was just like not a chance and there was a couple other shows that i remember missing out on because i was you know my parents were 
I guess, protective, which I guess is a good thing. Um, so like, I remember missing out like Earth Crisis played at the Pierce Arrow again, like early 92 and uh, didn't really get didn't get to go see that show. And I remember uh, I tried to like flex on my mom that she wouldn't let me go. And she just totally put me in my place. Like the two times in my life, one of the two times in my life, my mom just absolutely lost it on me and uh, put the fear of God in me. So I never asked for like another couple of months. And then eventually they were just like, fine, go, go to your rock and roll concerts and, you know, been going ever since. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, I had kind of the opposite where I had kind of, you know, n- not really any boundaries at all. And I was able to kind of do what I want. And, you know, in Rochester, when I got into it a couple of years later, we didn't have quite the, as many of those kind of shows. Like I did see Snapcase a lot, but it's just interesting that, you know, um, you were able to kind of get there right when, get into it right when the, the scene was, was, was really kind of popping off there. You know what I mean? Like, cause oh, yeah. Snapcase is a very influential band in Buffalo. And, you know, like I was telling you before, uh, we started talking, I had Daryl on an episode here. Um, so kind of how long in between you getting into the scene and like you, you playing in bands, like how long of a time period was that, I guess? Pretty much right away. Um, when I started high school, I, I took a percussion, like freshman percussion, and that gave my parents the peace of mind that I wanted to do this. Um, so they finally bought me a, bur- a drum set for my birthday and pretty much right after started playing in bands. Um, my first, I guess, real band was Next to Nothing, um, Gerald, Matt Roberts, um, Marcus Natty, the, all those dudes, which then later became Hourglass, and then some of them went on to Buried Alive and other things. Um, so I played in Next to Nothing for a while. We did a couple of demos. We went to Watchman Studios. Uh, and then because I had bad grades one semester, I got uh, I got grounded and uh, had to... Uh, was removed from the band because they wanted to keep playing shows and I just wasn't able to because of being in trouble. So that happened. And then um, kind of hooked back up with some friends that I had played with in a band prior that we were kind of messing around with and formed what would eventually become Daybreak. And that's probably, I guess, the early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, probably the you know biggest band I played in locally. Uh, in terms of longevity, um, putting out demos, putting out a, a seven-inch, uh, a split seven-inch, um, you know, T-shirts, all that stuff, playing a lot of shows. That was like the time when emo bands or whatever you want to call it, would play a lot of shows with punk bands and hardcore bands. So we played, I mean, us being an emo band, uh, played with Hourglass a bunch, played with um, uh, Josta 14, which then became Hatebreed. We played with um, Overcast. We played with Bloodlet, uh, Chokehold, Despair, Incision, like all these like bands that were 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 huge. Eventually became huge, and um, we were nothing like them. But we still got the scene cred, if you will, for for because especially Marcus, Marcus, Natty, and I always went to pretty much every show we could and supported every band. And that was back in the day when you had a backpack full of demos, just trying to sell your demo tapes, and people would just think, okay, like people would just buy it you know, three bucks, sure, I'll buy your demo. And that's how you did it back then. And then later on in life, if you tried to sell a demo of a band that no one ever heard of, they'd be like, get the fuck out of here. I don't know who you are. Like, get out of here. So um, that was how we, you know, became popular back then. Yeah, I, I, I had a backpack just draw myself too. And, and I was pretty notorious around here for that kind of stuff. 
And it's interesting, like all those bands you mentioned, uh, well, a lot of them anyways, you guys playing with, um, as we'll get to your current band later, I hear a lot of that influence, obviously, and a lot of the music, you know? So Yeah, it's, it's uh, without getting too far ahead, it's interesting that for me, being a person who loves heavy, hardcore, I never played in a heavy, hardcore band until I was old. <laughs> so for, you know, 25 years of playing in bands, they were all emo bands, rock bands, old school, hardcore bands, something that didn't have, you know, mosh parts per se until uh, much later in my musical career. Right. And I guess, again, without jumping too far ahead, is, was that, is that your first time on vocals? Like all these other bands you would play drums in? Uh, so I played uh, dr- um, drums for most of the bands. Um, and there was a song that Daybreak had recorded as a joke when we were in one of the recording sessions. Like we wrote it just as a joke. It was like, you know, 30 seconds long. And uh, we decided to record it. We had a little extra time in the studio. And I was like, I'm going to do vocals. And uh, <laughs> we wrote like a joke song about a friend of ours um kind of mean in, in retrospect um he knows about it you know years later and he loves it he thinks it's hilarious i still talk to him all the time he lives out in philadelphia um and i just enjoyed it so we would play it live and uh chris bloom the, the singer of of daybreak he would go and he would play drums and i would come out and i would sing that song and it had like a little bit of a cult following you know um and uh it, it was fun and then um, I didn't sing again until Drago, which was, what, 2000, 2000 we'll say, somewhere around 2000. Um, and that band also started kind of as a joke as well when I was playing in Home Field Advantage. Um, we were at practice, and um, my friend Nathan Borman, who I'll probably mention his name 30 times before this is over, um, he, was, he, was, he started playing second guitar in Home Field Advantage, and he you know, wasn't into emo really. He was more of a punk hardcore dude. So he would just start writing jamming riffs that sounded nothing like what we were practicing. And uh, Nick, the singer of Home Field Advantage also plays drums. So he's like, oh, let me play drums. So he would start playing drums. And then uh, I was like, I'm going to start singing then. And I would just start screaming at, at band practice, not really having any words per se. And um, we were like, this is fun. Like, let's keep doing this. And, and Chris Bame, who, who played in home field advantage and I also played with later on in, in Holy angels was still playing. And he was like, I'll, I'll play bass. So he just kept playing bass and it became Drago. And um, that was my, like my most fun band. I think the most fun I ever had in a band because there was just no bullshit. There was no, um, you know, there's no, nobody in the band who, who had any type of like, thoughts on on success or i'm the leader of the band or i'm the front man it was just like who cares and um nathan nathan and i talk all the time and we are like two idiots on the same wavelength like he would we would be talking about a a song like our song titles for our songs were always like the stupidest things because we would just be laughing he would write a song and we'd be like oh let's call that song bow (laughs) <laughs> because that was like the first guitar sound he made in the song. So we just had like these absurd song names and he has always had recording equipment. Um, so we would always just record stuff and just make up joke songs and joke bands and rap bands and hair metal bands and just stupid shit. So him and I just would always be fucking around just writing songs and playing in Drago for me as a singer was awesome. You know, I got to, you know, and I think I, I was in the early part of that band I was like always really shy and nervous. 
uh, about singing in front of a crowd. Like, what do you do? Like playing at shows that had a stage. And I was, I was like, oh, this is weird. I don't want to be on a stage, you know? So, but I think it, that band um, helped me to, to kind of work on my uh, skills as a singer, both lyrically, um, screaming wise, you know, uh, using my voice and not actually hurting my voice when I scream um, and just enjoying, you know, the limelight, I guess, of being the front man of a band. So you mentioned a few bands there that weren't in the notes because, you know, now I'm kind of kicking myself. Like, I feel like you and I should have had a discussion beforehand about all this because. Oh, well, just throw just, just surprise, just surprise yeah. parts. I like it. Yeah. Now we're just, now it's just like curveballs after curveballs, but you mentioned like bands that again, I wasn't prepared to discuss. And what's interesting again, like you and I talking before about, like interacting with each other, but not being sure if we met each other. You mentioned Holy Angels. Uh, I booked a show at the Bug Jar in Rochester in 2001. Yeah. With a small brown bike. Yep. Uh, a lesser known band at the time, Coheed and Cambria. Coheed and Cambria. I, yeah. I was thinking of this. Yeah. I was taking a piss right before. To, I didn't want to have to pee while I was talking to you. And I was thinking of that show. And I didn't know that you booked that. There's so many, like, Coheed and Cambria was nobody at the time. Yeah. I got a cassette single before their first record came out. And I remember thinking to myself, look at this guy with the fucking crazy hair. <laughs> and we, were, we ended up playing after them because we shared a bunch of gear with, with Small Brown Bike because we did a weekend with them that, yeah. that weekend. And I remember Coheed and Cambry being like, who, the f- who are you playing yeah. after us? And I'm thinking, who the fuck are you trying yeah. to play after us? Little did I know that um, they would become you know, a gigantic band. And I remember watching them and being like, this band's good. This band's going to be really, really good. And uh, we did a weekend with Small Brown Bike, and then we played with them again uh, at Crazy Fest that, that, that same year in uh, Louisville. And those dudes were awesome. I love that band. Um, I don't keep in touch with any of those dudes, but that band was fucking incredible. And that show was awesome. Our van broke down on the way home, and um, we had to push, it had to push to start it. And so if it stalled, you had to push it. So we actually stalled out going through a toll booth. So we had one of us, like, ran up ahead and grabbed the ticket from the guy or paid the toll, whatever it was. And then everyone else was pushing the van. And then we all jumped back in and threw it back into like drive and punched it and drove the rest of the way home. And it just died when we got home. And then we somehow like piled into somebody's car and small brown bike, let us use their gear for the, like the remaining like two shows or whatever of that little weekend run. But it was awesome. That was a good show. Yeah, I, I don't keep in touch with those dudes either, but the, the singer, I think his name was Mike. He was always a really nice guy. We, we booked them here quite a few times around that era. And again, kind of mixing 90s and early 2000s together, it's just interesting kind of like being in that time period and probably not really thinking about it at the time, like how many influential bands, you know, we were around. And now like looking back on like these bands reunite and the, like people are just so excited to see these bands, you know, and, and Small Bar Bike's definitely another one of them, you know, it's just. Yeah, I, I mean, they just announced the, you know, updated furnace fest lineup and everyone's like going crazy and i'm like shit i want to go to this too but what do i want to go to alabama for but these are all bands that i really enjoy or i'm friends with a lot of them Uh, i've toured with some of them um so i'm interested to see if it show actually happens um interested to see like if all the bands still play and then maybe i'll swing down there and you know buy like a last second flight and just call up some friends and ask them some, you know, some favors to get me in the show or get me, I don't mind paying for the show. I'm not trying to, you know, get in for free. I mean, I'd like to get in for free, but <laughs> if I, if I have to pay it and that, that's, that's cool too. You know, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. I feel like they're the first like current 
like big fest like that in the U.S. that's like announced, you know what I mean, like an actual like festival lineup for this year or like you know anytime soon. And even watching the news tonight and seeing like Texas reopening fully and all this stuff, it's just, you know what I mean. Like it's I, I want to wait to see like you're saying too to see how everything plays out because I'm I'm still like kind of unsure. You know. Yeah, they just announced like three fests here in Las Vegas. They've they've officially rebooked punk rock bowling. Um, which the only band I really want to see, which I've wanted to see for the past, like, I don't know, however long now is Circle Jerks. I've never seen Circle Jerks. I love Circle Jerks. I really want to see them. Um, and then uh, Psycho Vegas, they announced again. And there's a couple bands I really want to see there as well. Um, and just the other day, or just today, they announced the new lineup or whatever for Life is Beautiful. Not that I want to see that. There's like two or three bands that I'd be like, oh, I, I would watch them if I had the opportunity, but I'm not going to pay those absurd prices just to sit around and watch Green Day when I saw Green Day at Blind Melons in Cheektowaga for like $12, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. So obviously, as we'll get into in a second, you're, you're, you're in Vegas now, but I kind of want to put a time frame on the, all the bands we talked about. And I'm sure there's like probably 10 more that we won't get to. Um, as I said, I got into this around like 95, 96. So I'm guessing Daybreak was probably right around there before there. Well, yeah, Daybreak was um, probably started like 93, 94, um, probably 94 because next to nothing was probably 93 into 94. Daybreak then 94 through like 96. Um, then our bass player, Marcus, he moved to Pittsburgh. Uh, we kept playing and then we changed our name to Stand United. We played a couple shows as stand united <clears throat> that that as we became stand united we became way more on the punk side of things our our singer chris um is i don't want to say weird well we're all weird in our own way he would just he would just write songs that we would really really dig and then like the next week he'd be like yeah i don't like that song anymore let's cut it so we'd written and recorded, you know, 30, 40 songs between those two bands or whatever but we probably had twice as many that we just cut because he just didn't like it or he didn't, I didn't like the way it sounded. I didn't like the rhythm or whatever he would say. And we would just cut it. So every show we would play would be like a totally different set. We wouldn't play the same songs twice. Uh, and Stan United was pretty much the same thing. And that was the band that we played more with like counterclockwise and slush fund and that punk scene. Um, and then uh, that was at the end, which is probably up to and including like maybe 97. Um, then home field advantage, 98 through like 2000 uh drago you know maybe late 99 through question mark because we still write and record stuff just you know 2500 miles apart um then holy angels i don't really know when that band was around 2001 ish and that band i think had the most buzz about it when we formed because it had Scott Sprigg from Buried Alive. It had Mark Bricky from the Enkindles on vocals. So it had like buzz right away. And I remember him like uh, being like, well, I don't want to sign to initial records or whoever had put out the Enkindle stuff. He's like, I want to do our own thing. And we were just like, who cares who puts it out? Like, let's just like write and record songs. And um, <clears throat> I recently came across a box of old like eight millimeter tapes. And I was kind of just watching some old stuff and um, Holy Angels could have been way better but we were just we put so much time and effort into 
our style and making sure we looked right and said the right things or whatever. And I just don't think we, it, it actually got executed properly, like listening back to some of our shows and like, I, I guess I have a really good memory for songs and, and playing songs and writing songs and lyrics and everything. But like we would write a song and record it and then I would watch us playing it live and, and Mark wouldn't rec- remember any of the old, his own words to his own song. And near the end of the band or midway through or whatever, I started singing backups and I would have to like start singing the song for him to remember the words. And I don't know if he just didn't care enough or... I don't know his his reasoning. I'm not going to, you know, accuse him of whatever. I don't it's fine, it's cool, whatever. But like for a band that had so much buzz, you know, like our first big our first like quote real show was at the showplace with Alkaline Trio and Dashboard Confessional and a couple other vagrant bands and I remember we sold like you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of merch like sing like we did like a three-song CD, we did t-shirts and we just like sold out of merch like crazy. And I was like, shit, this band's going to make it. Like, we're going to be something. And it just kind of fizzled out from there right after I, I bought a van. Everyone had a reason why they couldn't buy a van. And I didn't have a reason. Like, I had a car that was paid off. I could sell it if I needed to. And everyone had a reason why they couldn't. So I bought a van. And uh, within, like, six months, the band broke up. And some people, like, gave me money. Like, hey, um, this is going to cover, like, my share of what the van payment would be. And that was a deal that we had talked about beforehand that the band members would chip in every month until I sold the van and would cover any costs, you know, divided by five or whatever. And that just didn't happen. Um, so I ended up renting that van out to bands that were touring um, mostly every time I die. Um, so when they first started touring, they would rent their, my van from me for like 300 bucks a week, something like that. And they would have to give me one of their cars while they were gone. And I had just gotten fired from Guitar Center. So I just got fired from Guitar Center. I'm renting out my van. I'm collecting unemployment. I'm literally doing nothing all day long. And I'm just like rolling in the money. At the time, I was paying like my share of rent was $150 a month. That was it. So I'm paying $150 a month in rent. I mean, I might have had a cell phone, but it was like, you know, super cheap. And I didn't, I, I was making, you know, $500 a week in unemployment and van rentals. So I'm just like doing nothing except, you know, playing video games all day and sleeping in and partying all night long. And, uh, you know, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, As you kind of referenced there, I remember late nineties, early two thousands for people who aren't from this area, the, the cost of living like rent and whatnot in Buffalo was just ridiculous. Like so low, like, like it could, it was just so cheap to live there. You know what I mean? I never, I never actually lived there, but like I, I consider moving there from here just because I was like, you, you, like I could sell the same kind of work and, and, and to have so much less in bills or whatever, you know? Um, but yeah, I remember when I booked uh, Holy Angels, it was the same kind of mentality. Like Scott Sprigger kind of told me about the band and I kind of was like, man, these guys seem like they might do something or whatever. Like, did you guys ever actually like tour, like tour, tour, or did you just do most like weekends and stuff? We did a couple of weekends. Um, we did a couple fests. We did Hellfest that that summer, uh, two thousand one. We did. Uh, I remember we played Hell. I saw. The, I found the video of us at Hellfest, and we played right after Burnt by the Sun. And I remember watching them while I'd set up, and I was watching them, and I'm thinking, Jesus, why the hell are we playing after this band? Like we're a bunch of fucking schlups. And uh, yeah, I remember playing after them, and and you know, not really fitting in. I mean, there's a couple more rock bands and whatever else you want to call. It, 
consider it at that fest. But, um, you know, when your main draw is like Earth Crisis, his last show ever and all this other shit, and where they're singing emo rock songs, we didn't really fit the bill. But we had fun, and I guess people liked us. At least enough people kept playing shows for a while. But, yeah, the most we did was just like weekends here and there and a lot of local shows and just kind of, like I said, just kind of fizzled out, never really did what it could have done, I guess. Yeah, I don't have the lineup right in front of me, but that Hellfest 2001, like looking back on it now, like we had like all all the Rochester bands that I was like, you know, helping out were friendly with at the time, like Stand Fast, The Disaster, and Building on Fire all played. And like you said, you guys played, but like all these up and coming bands, like Mastodon was there before anybody really knew who they were that year, yep. I want to say. Uh, you, like you said, Earth Crisis, Hatebreed, uh, Stretch Armstrong. Like that was, it, like again, looking back on all those early 2000s fests, like it was it was a really fun time. I might actually, if you want to wait, say, like, looking it up right now. <laughs> one second, I actually, I want to say that I have a screenshot that I recently came across of that lineup. Yeah, and so, all those, all those years around, like ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one, like there's just so much drama involved with that, and like bands couldn't play because it got the days got switched, and it was just I yeah, it got it got kind of moved all over the place. Yeah um that might have been it might have actually been moved like location wise it might have been moved as well i don't remember all the the specifics but i remember it was pretty crazy yeah and um yeah i found the like i said i found the the tape of it and i was watching it and watching some of the other bands and i was just like this show is insane like crazy lineup no that's cool i mean we're lucky just to like i mean you know buffalo rochester syracuse to have had like such a influential you know festivals and bands just in that era you know it's crazy to think i mean for for i mean i I know buffalo is you know the second biggest city in new york uh state but it's rather small when you look at the size of of buffalo rochester syracuse and the bands that came out of these areas um to me is just insane and i i can't even think of you know, a city of that size with that many bands, that many really, really good bands and bands that became really big. Um, you know, it, to me, it's just, it's just crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, like, like you said, earth crisis played that one. And then, I mean, like we were talking about before Snapcase, and, you know, I, I, I always just felt blessed to be in Rochester, which is right in between, obviously, buffalo and syracuse so i'm kind of looking at the lineup now a little bit here i'm gonna rattle off a few of those you found it before i did (laughs) yeah a death for every sin which they must have been kind of new at the time too uh all else failed 18 visions um every time i die i mean i feel like they played like several years in a row in the early 2000s you know and that that was obviously had to have been a time that that helped them uh become the band they are now you know martyr ad that's another band that at the time i i felt like i i enjoyed them you know what i mean but not looking back on it it's like damn like a lot a lot of people just get so excited about all these bands from from that era you know and martyr ad is one that, that i've seen videos of their like reunited uh like festival performances and stuff and it's just it's just crazy to see the response all these bands still get it, it's crazy that you know bands of that size that played small venues at the time are now playing like huge festivals and thousands of kids are moshing when I would see them playing and it, you know, it was like $8 to see them and they played in front of like a hundred people. So bands like, you know, Martyr AD, I just recently saw them 
you know, in the past couple of years at um, This Is Hardcore when Buried Alive headlined. Um, and I mean, the, 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 it was crazy to think like, yeah, I saw Buried Alive in like, you know, a tiny little like VFW hall. And now they're playing in this like 4,000 cap room and people are going crazy. Um, it's awesome. I love it. I love that these bands are getting the recognition that they deserve. Um, Buried Alive being like one of my, probably that my top Buffalo band of all time and other bands around the same time that I thought were just as good, still now getting the, the recognition they deserve. Turmoil, Dead Guy, um, those type of bands that, that um, are, are still, like if you listen to those records, they're still so, they were so far ahead of their time that they're still one of the best bands out there now, you know, 20 years later, which is, is just crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, just one other band that I want to mention that played that fest that we're talking about like bands that were small at the time and seen them for like eight bucks uh, Thursday actually I was on the 2001 and it's crazy to like that's around the time when they really started to blow up too you know yeah I've uh, I'm I'm pretty good friends with Tucker the drummer of Thursday and uh, Brian Deneve who played guitar in From Autumn to Ashes those two guys played in a boy band um there was a band from Europe. They were called not One Direction. Uh, shit, what are they? They had a song called I'm Glad You Came. But They were called The Wanted. Um, they were pretty big for a minute. They were really big. And when they toured, they wanted to have a band play their songs. And so somehow or another, Tucker got recruited and got a band. So it was him and, and Brian and, and a couple other dudes. And um, they toured with The Wanted and they were, I mean, they were making like just insane money touring like the Philippines and the world with this like huge boy band. And um, I remember they played in Vegas a couple of times and I went and saw them and I was like, this is amazing. And um, it was just hilarious that those dudes that I knew from the scene, you know, are, are, are playing these, these, you know, stadium tours uh, with, a, with a boy band. It was pretty awesome. Um, and now they're back doing, you know, their, their thing now with, with Thursday. And I think from and now from Autumn Ashes is playing, we'll be playing hopefully at um, Furnace Fest. So before we get into you moving to Vegas and what brought you there, I think you kind of referenced touring with bands. Is, is that something you were doing for a while too? Yeah. Um, the, the Drago went on tour in 2001 and uh, with this band from uh, Columbus called Killed in Action. And uh, band was awesome. The dude who was one of the singers now owns a burger restaurant in Southern California called Grill Em All. And it's like becoming hugely popular, like insanely popular. And uh, the guitar player, Scott, was like spinning around and jump kicking while they're like banging the face. And we're like, we should fight these guys. Like, fuck that shit. And then, you know, it's cooler heads and that. Then um, through just a random six degrees of separation, Chris Bame started selling merch for them and um, they needed a drum tech and uh, Fran is the drummer of From Arm to Ashes and he also sang a lot of songs. Now he's just the full-time singer, but at the time they had another singer as well and they needed a drum tech that could set up drums and blah, blah, blah and, and also play when he was going to go out front and sing a couple of songs. So he's like, oh, I know a guy. So he calls me. He's like, yo, you want to come and tour with From Out of the Ashes? And I was like, okay. And uh, 
so I was like, yeah, cool. So I started touring with uh, From Autumn to Ashes drum teching and playing some drums here and there and had a blast. And uh, Atreyu was just about to put out their second record, the Crimson. No, that was called the Crimson. That's their second record. That's the song on the record. I know for sure. Um, and they were becoming really, really big. And uh, they were like, yo, after this tour's over, you want to tour with us? And I was like, all right, cool. So uh, left from Autumn to Ashes, uh, started touring with Atreyu, did some pretty big tours with them. They were really getting huge, you know, selling out like 1,500, 2,000 cap rooms. I was going to, I started going back to school. I only had like one semester at Buff State. And I was like, I'm going to go back and finish. And uh, Atreyu was like, yo, we're going to do a world tour. Like, do you want to go with us? And I was like, uh, I don't know, you know, and I asked my mom, who's a, a teacher, who was a teacher her whole life, like, what do you think I should do? Expecting her to say, like, finish college, you know, become an adult, you know, don't be a child. And my mom was like, you can go to school whenever you want. Like, when can you go and travel the world and get paid to do it? And I was like, all right, cool. My mom said a tour, so I'm going to do it. So I did this tour with them. It was um, like six weeks in the U.S. and Canada, like uh, uh, a week or two in Europe a week in Australia, like a week and a half in, in Japan. It was huge. It was insane. And just traveling the world. And it was awesome. It was quite an experience. And, uh, you know, had a great time with that. And then I did warp tour with them that next, that following summer, the entire warp tour. And I was like, at the end of that tour, I was thinking, I gotta, I gotta stop, you know, touring because it just puts so much wear and tear on your body touring. And I was doing this, and it wasn't even my band. So I'm like busting my ass setting up, you know, eight full stacks of guitars and banners and, and, you know, in Warped Tour, you have like 10 minutes between bands to set up. So I'm like busting my ass setting up all this gear and, and, and tuning guitars and changing strings and pedals and batteries and just crazy amounts of shit all the time. And I'm like, this isn't even for me. Like I'm busting my ass for these dudes. And, um, at that time, at that shortly before that tour, uh, I met a girl. We started dating long distance, and she was also on Warp Tour. That's where I met her. She was working for production on the tour, and uh, we hung out like pretty much nonstop for like you know ninety days straight in a bus, stinking and sweating and being filthy every day. And at the end of the tour, she's like, "Hey, you want to move to Vegas?" And I was like, "Sure." So I called my, I called our tour manager and at the end of tour, they book you a flight home. And I was like, yeah, instead of booking me a flight to Buffalo, book me a flight to Las Vegas. And he's like, all right, cool. So I called my parents. I'm like, yeah, I'm not coming home. And they're like, okay, I'm going to Vegas. And they're like, okay, for how long? I was like, I don't know, sell my stuff. And they're like, okay. So they sold my, my dad sold my car and sent me the money. They just started sending me random boxes of clothes and t-shirts and I had to go back one time and get my drums and fl and bring them back. And eventually all of my stuff or most of my stuff ended up here. And, you know, 15 years later, it's still here. That's what, that's what I was going to say. Putting a time frame, and, and, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of that stuff might be foggy too. Like what, what years do you think was, was the touring mainly then? Like with, with uh, those bands? 2003 to 2005, I would say. And it sounds like when you did the Atreyu stuff, like you were talking about being like a drum tech uh, for From Autumn to Ashes, but Atreyu sounds like you were doing more. Yeah. So uh, Tony, uh, still a good, really good friend of mine, is their drum tech, was their drum tech, and they needed a stage manager slash guitar tech. And I was like, I could figure it out. I could change strings and tune guitars and that type of shit. Um, and as that band became bigger, bigger they needed 
real texts anyway, as I was getting ready to retire anyway. So it was pretty much a mutual parting of the ways because they could, they could get then real texts that knew how to like, you know, set up guitars and, and change tubes on amps and shit like that, where I was just like, I can change strings. I can fix a couple of things, but I'm not a guitar player. Um, I was definitely a drummer and could drum tech and fix drums and tune drums and all that shit. Uh, but that was what Tony was doing. So I was mostly with guitars. So I did that and kind of faked my way through it as long as I could. And then I guess to put the time frame out then, so it sounds like you moved to Vegas like mid 2000s pretty much then? Yeah, like late 2005 after that summer. So I remember I went to um, New Jersey right after the tour for maybe like a week or two and stayed at uh, Chris Ring's house when he lived in New Jersey. And that's when Lifetime did a couple of reunion shows in New Jersey and in Philly, stayed there for those shows, and then um, flew to Las Vegas. That was end of, you know, end of 2005. And then now, like, I, 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 I actually, oddly enough, around the same time, I was trying to do like a, a cross-country move. Now, I ended up living in Denver for a while, but like, I don't have like a lot of like, like for me getting a, like a, a, a job was just getting like a restaurant or like a, a retail type job. Like what, what do you do when you move to a city like Vegas? Like do you keep move, working with like the music industry or do you like? So I, um, I really liked casinos. Like the thought of a casino was just insane. Like these billion dollar buildings are just built on gambling. Like what a place, what an amazing place. And uh, so I started applying in sports books in the, in the casinos. And just lucky enough, I got hired to work at the Paris Casino and uh, started working in their sports book. And about a year later, I started working in another sports book at the Wynn. Uh, worked there for about five years and loved it. Loved every second of it. Uh, loved all the action and the excitement. Um, hated wearing like a uniform every day and uh, wanted to do more. At that point, I was, I've always been the type of person that really get super involved in my job in terms of knowledge. I'm not like I'm a crazy, insane worker. I, I work, I do fine or whatever, but I really get involved in the point of like what the job entails. So, I mean, I worked in shoe stores. I could tell you everything about sneakers and running shoes and basketball shoes and the makeup of the shoes and the cushioning systems and bullshit that I worked at guitar center. I could tell you everything about drums, every drum company's, way to manufacture wood and what wood is used and what drums and each ply of every drum and also their bullshit. So when I worked in a sports book, I got so deep into the world of sports betting, like really deep into it. And I wanted to further my career and become like an odds maker, a manager of a book. And it just wasn't going to happen at the win because those people had been there for so long and they were locked in, they weren't going anywhere. So I started working uh, for a company called Cantor Gaming. Um, and I was an odds maker for their in-running wagering department. So uh, as it, it's becoming bigger, it was pretty big then. It's, I think it's even bigger now. We can bet on live sporting events as they're happening. So you have to adjust lines just on the fly. So a football game's going on, a team scores. Okay, you got to adjust the line, put it back up, you know, just put up lines and totals and prop bets all the time. And got really, really good at doing that, like insanely good. Um, was running the department and um, <laughs> the FBI came in and arrested a bunch of people at my work for money laundering and crazy shit going on that I actually had no part of, thankfully. So I just kind of like, I'll see myself out. Thank you. And uh, 
what's crazy is, is that your, your pay is shit compared to all of the money that you're taking in and, and taking wagers on and are accountable for. Um, the, the one, like one calendar year, I, I kept track of every bet that I took and every line and every win and loss that I did for the entire year. And so I went to my, the bosses, like the vice president of Canner Gaming. And I was like, okay, this past year, I personally made you guys $25 million. Like, what are you going to pay me? And <laughs> they were like, uh, yeah, the same. And I was like, this is bullshit. Um, and so I started doing the company's Facebook page and Twitter and other shit like that and helping them with copywriting stuff for, for magazines. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to start doing that type of stuff. So I got into uh, casino marketing and uh, when, you know, casino marketing, when it came to like direct mailers, like your postcards, you get in the mail, like saying you got free play and that type of shit. And then going into email, which is, you know, definitely the wave of the future. And uh, I've been doing that ever since uh, with a couple of different companies. And now I manage all of the uh, emails for a, a marketing firm that has a bunch of casino clients, some retail clients. And I just uh, do all the email and all the reporting. And it's not super exciting, but I'm good at it and it's cool and it pays the bills and gives me a nice nine to five, which I never had, especially in sports books. You're working, you know, uh, you know, Super Bowl Sunday is always like a 14 hour shift and you, you don't get to watch TV. You don't get to watch the Super Bowl. You don't get to watch March Madness. You don't get to watch any of these things because you're punching tickets the entire time and, and you know, making sure your drawer isn't off because you're taking millions and millions of dollars of bets. So uh, it's much cooler now. It's that, you know, that work-life balance thing where, um, you know, you enjoy your work, but you also have a life. So I really, and having weekends off is, is awesome. Maybe you saw my head explode at some point during your uh, explanation there. Maybe you didn't. <laughs> we didn't, again, we didn't really talk beforehand. Like I sent you an outline yesterday, but we didn't talk about a lot of this kind of stuff. So, and again, we don't really know each other that well from 2012 to 2017-ish, basically, like with maybe with a year or two off, but for about five years, I played daily fantasy sports and did nothing else. You know what I mean? It's crazy, right? It's very relatable to what you're talking about. It's obviously not sports betting, but now it's kind of looked at very similarly. Yeah. And I know for a fact that when you're talking about like setting in-game lines and all this stuff, you're obviously good with numbers. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's something that for me playing daily fantasy for all those years and still playing it now, like it's a lot of, and again, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with this because this is like a hardcore right. conversation. Let's but not talk about funny. analytics of, right. of value of players. <laughs> but, but it's just but yeah. really, it's funny because I've spent like, like since I've been out of like, not as involved with hardcore, I guess you could say, like I still listen to hardcore and go to shows, but I'm not like doing it like all day, every day. Like, but basically since, like what, what took the, the time of that away is like fantasy sports. Like all I, I looked at for several years was just the stats and the yeah. numbers. And it's just crazy to think that you basically did like what I would have loved to have done. Like I never really, you know, had the balls to try to move to Vegas, but I would have loved to have tried to work one of those jobs you're talking about and seen some of the crazy shit that you're talking about. You know? Yeah, and as you get deeper into it and you start to really pay super close attention to the analytic analytical side of it, that's where you as a sports better can really find your spots. And people would always ask me like, what, what do you, what, what's the, what, what do you bet on? I like, well, we'll pick a, pick a college basketball conference that nobody fucking cares about and really dig deep. So, you know, everything about like 
some bullshit university that no one would ever even hear of Hofstra or, or, you know, Canisius college. I was always a college that I followed was Canisius college because of the area. And I would always bet on or against them. I would always bet on their games and like had a really good, like win percentage for them. And uh, you know, you just, cause like they don't, they don't care about that shit. If they're taking millions of dollars on a, a you know, NBA Lakers Celtics game, they're not going to care about some injury that happens to some point guard, for for florida international because they just don't care and that's where you can really you know find your your niche to to be like a expert with you know conference usa or some weird you know obscure thing and that's the funny thing because again relating it to daily fantasy uh a lot of things changed in 2016 here because it got outlawed um sidebar by an attorney general who ended up getting kicked out of his position less than a year later with all the me too stuff so it's interesting that you know, he was a scumbag anyways, but that's where he took his, I'm going to take my stand on sports gambling, but you yeah, know. you know, I could, I could have another comment, but anyways, um, before all that happened, when it was, when it was really ramping up here and it was kind of like that wild West where there wasn't as much information for daily fantasy, college sports was where to make the money. Cause there wasn't, yeah. you can't find as much information about it. So you really had to be worried with Twitter and following the shit. So it's just interesting to see like the parallels between the two are, are very similar. Um, and one other question I have for you before we, uh, you know, turn this into a, a sports betting episode. Um, so it sounds like, like you were able to, you know, set the lines and like do kind of stuff like that at one casino, but still, and I don't, if you don't, if you can't really talk about it, I understand, but like, were, were you legally able to like bet? Like at other I just couldn't bet at my shops. I could bet anywhere else. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you could, you could definitely do that. And uh, what shortly after Kenner gaming, um, I can talk about it cause I don't work there. But uh, shortly after Canner Gaming uh, got the, the not the plug pulled on him, but got really busted up, uh, they brought on a whole new team of of VPs and whatnot. And I just got really didn't get along with the one guy, like not at all. And the owner was still shady as fuck. So I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. And I kept telling them they were putting up lines for an uh, NFL for uh, series outcome. Will they get a first down? Yes or no. How will this series end? Touchdown, field goal. They don't do that anymore. And um, I, I might be a small, small reason why they don't, but um, I would always tell them when we're watching this game on direct TV, we are so far behind everybody else. The radio is faster. Cable is faster. We're the slowest feed. Like we need to get a faster feed. And they just never did. So I stopped working there and had my friend set up an account so it wasn't under my name. And I just went there and I just listened to games on like AM radio. And I would just be picking off bets because I knew what would happen. Yeah. You know, will there be a first down? Yes or no? You bet no when the quarterback gets a sack on first down because you're yeah. getting such value. And then you bet the other side when it's a huge plus. So you're just getting all this value on all these yeah. bets. And I would win a bunch of bets. Then I would lose a couple. I'd win a couple bets. I'd lose a couple. T- so they wouldn't be on to them uh, because I would catch people all the time that were cheating but they weren't smart about it. And so I made sure I was doing it, not cheating. I just had an advantage that they knew of. They just didn't care. And you'd be betted in small enough increments. I was only winning a couple hundred dollars a game. They don't care. They're winning, you know, they have millions of dollars on pregame bets. So them losing $200 to some dude on in running, they didn't care. So I just kept doing that. And then week 17 of the NFL season, they finally figured it out and canceled his account <laughs> so he went there and cleaned him click closed out our account and counted our money but it was fun it was fun while it lasted 
And then I guess the last kind of question I would have that you kind of mentioned there before we jump into your band, obviously it doesn't sound like it ever happened to you, but while working in casinos, you know, having seen the movie Casino and stuff like that, like, did you ever see like anybody get kind of like, you know, roughed up or taken out by like the pit boss or anything like that? Or Um, it's, yeah, it's not as exciting, at least Casino, um, was filmed and it was taking part place in like the seventies and eighties when the, the mob ran everything. Um, but so I worked at the wind for a long time and Steve Wynn was the owner and CEO for the longest time. And, um, he did not, he had still had a lot of mob ties and you did not fuck around with him. Like I met him a couple of times and I was always just like, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. And turned around and walked away. But, um, I've heard, you know, secondhand stories of, of like a hooker, like punching him in the face and him just like dragging her like security just dragging her to some like back room and like never don't know what happened type of thing and uh you know some crazy stories i mean we could we could have another talk if we want about crazy podcast uh, about uh crazy casino stories but i mean working in a casino in the casino on the floor for about six seven years like you saw everything from fights to to you know people pulling guns out to you know floyd mayweather used to bet at my casino and he would just bring bags full of money bags full of like just stacks of like half million dollars and just drop it on the counter and i was just like hey floyd hey what's up man <laughs> him and him and 50 cent used to hang out all the time um they're on again off again friendship him and just him and 50 cent would just be hanging out at the counter like shooting the shit with us and like how many players that we had that were huge huge players that ended up going to jail for for money laundering and fraud and offshore betting and just all this crazy shit. It was, it was insane. The, 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 the shit that happens in casinos that you don't hear about is just crazy. It's insane. Like I said, I hadn't, I hadn't planned on, on really discussing a lot of this with you, but we could definitely uh, in the future, maybe have a, a more in-depth uh, talk conversation, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, another thing that kind of brought us together is this dude, Mike uh, from Bradley publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of shot me an email and, and, and immediately when he sent it to me, I was like, I know who this dude is like, not, not knowing, like, like we talking about the beginning, like not necessarily maybe like putting all the pieces together, but like, I knew I've heard the band name. I, I kind of seen the band around and stuff. Um, so now you're doing the end of everything. That was what we're talking about. Yes. Um, so kind of take me into the formation of that before we kind of dive too deep into all that. Uh, yeah. So I moved out to Vegas and, uh, met a dude named Scott and, uh, became really good friends with him. And him and I have always talked about starting a band and playing in a band for years and years and years. Um, kind of messed around with it, stopped doing it, wrote a couple songs, realized it sucked. Um, took our time to actually learn our instruments and the song structure that we wanted to write. And um, we recorded the first demo for the end of everything, just him and I. Um, he has a studio in his house. So he did guitar and bass. I did drums and vocals. We made some demo tapes and CDs uh, with a cover. And on the back, I just hand wrote, do you play drums or bass? Give us a call. And uh, just handed them out to a bunch of people. And um, nothing really became of it. But we were pretty, we were determined. We were more determined this time to, to, to write and record and, and do stuff. And uh, Scott was playing in another band in town called Unfair Fight. And the guitar player of that band also played drums. And um, 
he was like, yeah, I'm like, let's ask Chris. So we asked Chris to, to play drums and uh, we had another friend playing second guitar for a while. And um, Chris was like, oh, I know a dude who plays bass. Like he's an old dude like us. Like he'll want to, he'll jam with us. And um, so we met Artie and uh, started a band and that's uh, how it started. Now, I guess one question and, you know, not to really age you, but uh, I turn 40 next week. So I'm guessing you're at least a little bit older than me. Um, yeah. I just had a birthday, uh, February 2nd. I turned 43. So like, as we get older, like what, what kind of motivated you to want to do like another band like this? And I mean, not just like this, but like a band of this style that, you know, you hadn't really exactly done before. You know? Yeah. I, I never played in a band that was heavy enough to, to, you know, shout out mosh calls and, and, and really enjoy it and that type of stuff. And, uh, Scott and I had, we have, he grew up in Reno. I grew up in Buffalo. So opposite ends of the country. Uh, Chris, our drummer grew up in, in Southern California already our bass player. And he was a Las Vegas native. We all kind of grew up in different areas, but we all still have the same love of that heavy mid nineties, hardcore of the earth crisis, the strife, uh, turmoil, dead guy, you know, the list goes on and on, uh, you know, uh, vision of disorder, all those type of bands. And, um, we're like, let's start, let's start a band that sounds like that. And we kept trying and trying. And, um, you know, we just, I eventually, I guess, got the formula right and um, kept going from there. Yeah, I definitely hear a, a heavy strife vibe in the earlier stuff. And probably like, I, I, I don't, I, it probably isn't even intentional for you guys, but I hear like more of like an early 2000s almost like kind of like heavy, you know, fast, like moshy stuff uh, with the newer stuff, you know. Um, but another question I would have, uh, are all those guys like kind of older in age or is it like, uh, I think our, I think Artie's older than uh, me. And I think Scott's a little bit older than me and Chris is younger than me. So we're all, we're probably, we probably average about 40. We're our, yeah. our median average is 40. I would say. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You see a lot, you see, you do see more bands now. I feel like with like, like, I guess you could call it like the elder statesman of hardcore, whatever you want to say, you know what I mean? Like, and you might not have seen it as much in the nineties, I guess, because hardcore hadn't been around as long, you know, like now, yeah, you know, now I feel like there's, I mean, even in Buffalo, like I've talked to a lot of those people on, on the, on the podcast that are like around the same age that are in band still. And it's just, it's cool to see, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's cool because there's just so many people that are just, it's clearly like to answer your question that I kind of didn't answer. I think just dedication and just the love of hardcore. Um, so many people that I know and have known from the hardcore punk whatever scene from back then they've just i don't know moved on grown up whatever you want to call it and that's not a bad thing um but i don't want to listen to bon iver or whatever i, I just picked a name out of out of the air um i don't want to listen to that like i don't like i want to listen to fucking hate breed you know, and I still want to, that's all I want to listen to is like, and I still listen. I've, I've definitely evolved. I, you know, when I was younger in, in the mid nineties, late nineties, all I listened to was just hardcore, like nothing else. And now I, I listen to a lot more radio friendly stuff as well. You know, I still love, you know, what you'd consider like emo, you know, Chamberlain and, and even stuff that could, I guess would be called like adult contemporary. Like I still listen to the Goo Goo Dolls all the time. I love the Goo Goo Dolls. I love Counting Crows. Um, so I listen to those bands um, a lot. And I think those are the bands that kind of uh, influence me lyrically. 
because I love like super heavy mosh parts. I love fast verses and choruses, but I like the emotion of, of those type of bands. And I try to incorporate uh, themes of personal feelings and personal adventures versus, you know, screaming about, you know, the scene, you know, all the time or screaming about straight edge or veganism. And I love earth crisis, but I couldn't write 12 songs about being straight edge. I just couldn't do it, you know, but you know, so I just kind of evolved, I guess, lyrically and, and, you know, style wise to, to more of uh, emotional type of, I guess, lyrics to go along with the emotional heavy music. Yeah. And it's interesting because I definitely noticed like a personal and emotional vibe with the lyrics and I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it now, but the, the, it's definitely not like a typical hardcore vibe, like the, the way the lyrics are, you know, you can definitely tell that if you, if you like, you know, actually think about the way you just mentioned it, you know? Yeah. I, um, I mean the band, the end of everything came from a American nightmare song um, from AM PM. That would be the end of everything. Um, and that's where we got the band name from. And I love American nightmare. I love American Nightmare. They're one of my favorite hardcore bands. Um, and I love his, his, you could just hear so much emotion in his voice. And he just sings about emotional stuff, about feelings and, and, and depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and, you know, just stuff that you don't normally hear about in hardcore. So I really latched on to that band and still listen to that band at least the first you know couple records i don't listen to their newer stuff as much but um you know i just love that you just hear that emotion in his voice like you could just hear it in this inflections and his cracks of his voice and lyrically you know i think is just is top notch when you think about i, I think american nightmare stands out amongst so many other hardcore bands because of the lyrical content I 100% agree. I would say from that early 2000s, American Nightmare and Bane for me, like the two bands where the lyrics are just, you know, top notch. And and just looking back at American Nightmare, though, it's just interesting because um, I'm doing an episode, probably one of the next couple episodes of the podcast where it's going to be like mainly themed around like Rochester Hardcore 2001. But as I was making the notes, I'm like thinking about like all these other records that came out like nationally that year just to kind of, you know, mention in the episode and like that album. American Nightmare full length as well as that that second EP came out that year and it's just crazy to think about you know now we're 20 years past like just being in in, in that time frame though like just when those records came out you you just knew like that was the lyrics obviously were like I, I I to that period in time I have never seen anything you know written like that you know what I mean right. like for a hardcore band it was just so kind of tell me how you guys hooked up with uh, uh, War Against Records then. Did, did they just put out the more recent record or, or both the records for you guys? <clears throat> so we put out our first two demos ourselves, which was four songs and then two songs later. Um, and I just sent them around to a couple of labels, um, talked to a couple of people. They were like kind of interested. They, people were like, hey, what? tell us what you want to do. You know, you're planning on touring. I think maybe some of us, some of the labels might have been scared off by the fact that we were older. Maybe they thought like, we weren't going to tour. We weren't going to push it. So they kind of stepped away or maybe they just weren't as interested as we were. Um, and I was right on the cusp of, of putting out a record myself. Like I'd done some research about, you know, printing plants and covers and, and printing all that shit myself. And um, Ryan um, sent me a message, sent me, sent me an email 
I had messaged him a while ago. He had put out uh, a record for Fake Figures, which is Travis from Atreyu's other band. And so I just kind of like used that as my in. Like, hey, I see you put out my buddy Travis's band. Check out my band. Just kind of sent him our stuff. And um, he wrote me back. He was like, this is awesome. Like, I love this type of hardcore. Like, let's do something. And I was like, sweet. So we repackaged our first two demos. We got rid of one of the songs because it was our oldest song and we just didn't really like it. We repackaged those and remixed and remastered them and just released it digitally as This Means War at the very beginning of, of 2020. And uh, <clears throat> we, uh, toured with, we toured a little before that. Um, we had some fun playing you know, West Coast shows and um, we played in San Diego with his band, uh, Pressure Cracks, uh, which is the singer from Fever 333 and other things, his hard, most hardcore band. Um, so we played with them, had a blast, and um, we decided he wanted to put out a record. So we're like, sweet. So uh, we had like three songs done um, and two and a half, I guess you could say, two and a half songs done. And then we finished them up and that's when coronavirus hit. So um, as I mentioned, Scott, our guitar player, has a studio in his house. Chris, our drummer, also has a studio in his house. So we demoed those songs separately. Like each person just record their stuff, pick a tempo, pick a time signature, pick a, you know, and just record drums. Then he sent them to Scott, did some guitars, did some bass, did some vocals, and um, we just demoed them. And they, they came out pretty solid. Like we were pretty excited as to how the quality of it came out and the timing especially because we didn't really sit down and map it out. We just went with it. So um, we, we got together in um, probably like April, May and um, brought, Chris brought all of his good stuff and Scott brought all of his good stuff together. And we just kind of stuck it all in a room and um, got all of our tempos down, got everything, you know, any type of changes them, you know, from a band standpoint, when you see bigger bands, demoing and doing pre-production for records like it's it's really helpful um because it helps you to sit there and think about this part's a little dragging this part's a little too fast i got too many words in this part let me cut a word out let me reword this uh this part should be palm muted not open you know do a pick slide here do with it you know it really gives you so much opportunity to to listen and and pick apart your songs and make them for the better without use of a producer you know just us I guess, producing it ourselves. And um, we just sat down and, and just got into it and, and recorded all those songs. Uh, this time, like, you know, doing like what you do in a studio, changing out all the drum heads, changing out all the guitar strings, you know, making sure every mic is in the exact right spot and levels are right and all that stuff. Um, so we did that. And I was lucky because we recorded ourselves, I got to do vocals whenever I wanted, whenever I felt comfortable. So if I got there and I started screaming, it just didn't feel right. I would just come back another day. Um, I would record them and I could come back and I would fix a couple spots. Like, oh, my voice, I didn't like it in this one spot. I want to fix it. So we really had the time to really um, take our time and, and really get it the exactly the way that we wanted it. And um, Ryan was super stoked and um, we put it out and we're very happy with the product that we have and we hope people check it out. Now you had kind of mentioned, you know, COVID and the pandemic and whatnot. And you mentioned like going out to California and playing shows out there and stuff. 
uh, obviously, as we're literally as we're recording this episode, we're basically like like exactly one year into everything. When everything kind of first started with COVID, like, did you guys have shows planned? Were you guys planning on touring soon after that? Like, like, kind of take me into how all that kind of transpired. Yeah, we um we were we'd played like I said we'd played like a a week or so in California and that and um in like April of 2019 and uh, wanted to do it again somewhere around then play some of the same spots that we played play a couple new spots you know I mean we're older we all have careers and and families and kids and pets and whatnot so we can't sit there and do like a you know go out for three months at a time but we could do a week here you know five days here go weekend west go weekend east go weekend north that type of shit so we were planning on it and we had just played a show in february with terror and dare in las vegas it was awesome um we were planning on doing some more stuff we had had a show booked in uh april with jesus peace so we were like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to get some cool momentum going. And uh, nothing happened. Coronavirus happened. Yeah, and it definitely shut everything down. And again, you know, it's, it's definitely one of the topics to talk about, I guess, on here. I don't want to go too deep into it because it's all we've pretty much talked about for the last year. But, you know, with like, like I told you before, the interview tonight was my son's third birthday. And we were just kind of talking about, like, how crazy it is, like, last year, this year, like, you know, to think about how you know, things have, have transpired with this whole thing. Do you guys have, like, what do you guys think you would do, like, in a in a perfect world, like, once everything kind of gets settled and, and shows are hopefully potentially happening again? Yeah, we did, um, we did an Instagram live show in June, and we had fun doing it. We got to take our time and set it up in Scott's garage, and we set up a projector, and we got, like, cool shit to, to project on us while we played, and we had fun doing it, but it's totally different than a, a live show. It's just not the same. Um, but, uh, yeah, in a perfect world, um, we'll start playing shows again. And, and there's a lot of bands in Las Vegas, or rather there were a lot of bands in Las Vegas pre pandemic and, um, who knows what's going to happen in a year plus of not playing shows. Will the band break up? Will band members move away? You know, will they even care enough anymore? Um, so there were tons and tons of local bands that were all really, really good, uh, we probably had like 10 really solid bands from Vegas all across different hardcore genres of thrash and crusty hardcore and old school hardcore and screamo and, you know, sludgy hardcore. I mean, there's literally everything. Um, and they're all really good. And whatever comes out on the other side, I'm not really sure, but um, hopefully we'll be able to play some shows locally. And uh, it's, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens um, with venues and, with promoters and who wants to book a show and who wants to risk it. Um, I mean, you, you've always kind of had that in the hardcore scene um, with booking shows of, of fights and, you know, uh, people breaking shit and, you know, not, you know, small little venues, not having insurance and, you know, bouncers getting a little too aggressive. Like you've always had that, but now you're dealing with something that is that something that we've never w- had before, you know, in uh, over a hundred years. So, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, everything's going to be a little bit uh, different, you know, singers putting the mic into the crowd, uh, people jumping on each other, bands sharing gear, you know, sound guys, every band using the same microphone. I mean, I've always had my own microphone because I'm an old guy and I don't want to be 
sucking on people's spit from their microphones. So I've always, from when the band started, I've, I've always had microphones, my own microphones also so I can smash them if I want to, I want to throw it. I want to, you know, do whatever I want. I can. Um, so I've always had my own, but, um, it's going to be a really interesting place. But I mean, as a dude who's on the uh, downside of my hardcore band career, like I want things to be as normal as they can, as quickly as they can, so we can get back to to playing shows and, and having fun. Yeah, I agree completely. I, um, like I said, I, ha- I, I mean, there hasn't been a ton of shows in Rochester for several years anyways. We would have like one or two good shows per year. I feel like maybe a few other ones, but you know, as, as I've gotten older, I've, I've only gone to a couple of those shows here and there. And then like when the classic, like negative approach judge, like when those bands hit the area, I, I you know, I made a point to, to catch those bands for the first time. But as I've told you, you know, in the, in the other parts of this conversation, I, I definitely booked shows in the past and definitely have the itch to do it again in the future. But as, as we were just talking about, like, there's a lot of, a lot of variables that weren't in place before. And then even ones that were that I was in my late twenties, early thirties when I was booking shows. Now I'm 40 with, I have a kid and I'll have, I'll have two kids by the time I can book shows again. You know what I mean? So it's, there's a lot of things we don't think about when we're younger that now that I'm a little older, I, I would get a little nervous with uh, doing some shows, you know? I, um, I really uh, love the band Orthodox. I don't know how much you'd listen to them. I don't know uh, if I'm familiar. Yeah. Uh, check them out. They're so good. I, I, first time I saw them was in Vegas and I'd never heard anything by them. And like, I was just like, holy shit this band is so good and um to the point where like i went to my car and i found like a cd so i can go and give it to the singer like a like a fanboy like your band's really good listen to my band and um they put out they put out two full lengths on unbeaten records i think and uh they played here i don't know maybe january of the of 2020 january or february and uh I was like, I, I was telling my buddy, like, I love this band. I'm going to fucking kill someone in the pit. Like, I really like this band. And uh, I went like, I went like full blown. Like I put my phone in the car. Like, I'm going to come back. I'm going to fucking spin kick. I'm going to throw somebody. Uh, and I don't, I'm not a mosher. I mean, I'm, I'm an old guy, but I, this band is just so good. I wanted to just fucking mosh. And uh, they start playing and like people start dancing. And I look and like everyone dancing is like, 15 years old and i was like i can't mosh like i'm going to break some kid's leg and i'm going to get sued and i can't i'm going to get arrested and my daughter's going to be wondering where the hell i am and you know and i'm going to be like can't come into work because i'm in jail and so i was like i i can't i can't dance like i'm just going to stand here and sing along and bop my head but i i can't mosh the the entire pit is just like kids that are half my age and then some and you know what are they some 40 year old guy just kicked some 15 year old girl in the face like shit i can't i can't you know can't do that so i just couldn't uh i just didn't i still enjoyed the show but uh i had to definitely dial back whatever i was planning on doing uh young till i die but i guess uh adults past 40 you know (laughs) i mean i yeah yeah i definitely have that same young man mentality but um i just have a little bit of more adult foresight like maybe just hold off a second don't do that you know you know when when a fight breaks out at a show like don't just swing on somebody because (laughs) maybe just take a step back or break it up or just pretend like you're not there like just you know it's not your concern let it go type of thing 
from having booked so many shows, I always would try to break up the fights unless it was, you know, involving security guards, obviously. But um, past injuries and whatnot, I think I might just let let people kind of <laughs> handle themselves yeah. at this point, you know. But I guess kind of shifting into the current events a little bit. I mean, we've talked COVID a little bit, so I don't think we really need to beat that horse anymore. There's been a pretty big rise in like Black Lives Matter and like a lot of issues with like police and stuff over the last year and even more than that. But more recently, it's just been in the forefront, I feel like. Um, I guess, do you have any opinion on that kind of stuff or is that anything? Oh, tons, tons of opinions. Um, I've mentioned on a, I think on another podcast, like I, I don't sing politically motivated songs. That's just not the lyrical content that I write. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm not knowledgeable of it and well aware of it. Uh, I guess the easiest way for me to discuss it is to talk about it from my perspective. Um, as a straight white male, my life has been pretty comfortable. Um, growing up in, in Buffalo, my dad, um, is a firefighter, was a firefighter, uh, he's retired now, he's a firefighter, a welder for the town of Cheektowaga, a bowler, softball, like he knows every cop and every fireman in, in a, you know, 100 mile radius. So I've been pulled over God knows how many times. And every time I get pulled over, the, the cop looks at my driver's license and they're like, oh, Stanishevsky, slow down, tell your dad I said hi, and I would just drive off. So I can't speak to the, 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 the harshness of, of being black and, you know, fearing, literally fearing that you're going to get shot every time a cop pulls you over. Um, I spent a brief stint for about two years in Florida in Southern Florida, Southwest Florida, right by like Naples, Florida. And um, uh, got pulled over riding my motorcycle and a cop like had his gun out, like not pointed at me, but he had it out. And he was like, you're not one of those bikers with weapons, are you? And I was just like, no, I just, I just did an illegal U-turn, dude. Like, ch chill out. And that was like the extent of my negative run-ins with police. But I couldn't imagine if every one of my stops was like that. I mean, I, I got pulled over for literally everything. Illegal tint, speeding. I once fell asleep driving on the highway and I was going like 90 and I woke up and I came like inches away from hitting a parked cop car and the cop was just like tell your dad literally said tell your dad i said hi and i got to drive away and i was just like it was like three o'clock in the morning and i'm thinking i have a legal tint i'm way over the, the speeding uh wasn't drinking but um and he has the only question he asked me he's like you're drinking i'm like no i literally just i'm exhausted i'm just trying to go home and um that was the extent of it. And I remember the next day, my dad coming home from bowling or whatever. He's like, Oh, I saw your buddy. And I was like, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. He's like, officer McDonald told me, uh, he caught you going a little fast yesterday on the 33. And I was like, yeah. And that like, that's it. So when people, when other people discuss like, Oh, there's no such thing as white privilege, you know, oh, I never got a check in the mail for my white privilege. It's, it's insane that there's, either so stupid or so oblivious to to what's going on in the world and you can you can look it up just look up a just look up any you know person uh of uh, you know two people who have committed the exact same crime with the exact same history of of arrests you know one person gets 10 years the other person gets six months why you know 
and it's 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 a sad state that we've been in and we've been in this for a long time and up until Rodney King and recently like no one ever knew how bad it was unless you were part of it or you believed that that situation really happened because people have been talking about police brutality forever and it was always just like "Eh, well what did you do now we're seeing these videos and now but now some people it's shifted to well what happened before the video and it's just like you know it's it's crazy to think that um there are so many people i mean this last election in the last five years and the pandemic has really shown me that america is really stupid like half of the country give or take is really really stupid uh you know and it's crazy like if you're a, a white male if joe biden is president or if donald trump won another election your life wouldn't change really at all you know taxes go up a tiny bit go down a tiny bit whatever whatever my life isn't going to change either way to regardless of who won that election but there are a lot of people whose lives will change dramatically with that last election and like what when i think about it like it's it hurts my soul to think that people that i'm friends with and grew up with and family members are like, well, I don't want to vote for Joe Biden. I don't want to vote for Joe Biden either, but it's the lesser of two evils by a long shot. And I'm not voting for me. I'm voting for my daughter. I'm voting for her to be the person that she wants to be when she grows up, to love who she wants to love, to do what she wants to do with her body. And, you know, for someone to sit there and say that, that she can't be who she wants to be or can't love who she wants to be is just, is fucking crazy. And, you know, when you deal with all of this stuff and you see it from a bigger picture as you get older, like it's just, it's sad. It just makes me sad that we're in a situation where people that, that I'm friends with, that, you know, I went to high school with, that I went to college with, that I grew up with are just, are just so oblivious. And it, it, it just hurts my, it just hurts my feelings basically that they just don't give a shit because it doesn't affect them personally. Well, I don't have coronavirus and I don't know anyone who does. So it just isn't real. It's fake, you know? Well, by that standard, I don't know anyone who's died in a car accident. So guess what? They must never happen, you know? Like just because it doesn't touch you personally doesn't mean it's not real. And, and just the, the stupidity of people is, is staggering, uh, which led to the song, the, the record title, Things Are About to Change. It's a lyric from a song and... Um, we were hoping that, uh, you know, the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, that things are going to be different, hopefully for the better. I mean, bringing awareness to people, I think, is the best thing you can do. And, you know, fighting with somebody in a comment section of Facebook is just, you know, tiring and you're not going to get anywhere. You're spinning your wheels. So I try to avoid those things. It's hard. Sometimes I still got to. But, uh, just trying to, you know, be a better person and uh, try to raise your, your, your family right and, and do what's best is the best thing that you can do and, and be aware that things are different. I can't speak from a black person's perspective or I can't speak from a transgender person's perspective, but I can understand what they're saying and I can listen, uh, you know, and that goes a long way. You know, if someone says to me like, oh, hey, my, I don't want to be called Bill anymore. I want to be called 
Jen, okay, I'm going to try my best to call you what you want to be called. And I might mess up. I might slip up, but I apologize if I do. And, you know, all the power to you. But people are just so hung up on they want the world to be the way that they are. And it's, that's not right. It's just, it's just completely wrong on every possible level. Yeah, you know, it's crazy because it seemed like for the longest time that we as a society were, you know, moving forward and evolving, so to speak. And I don't know that we actually were, you know, because then once social media really blew up, I think we all kind of learned that all these idiots, especially around not this election, but the last election, it kind of all the idiots came out of the woodworks and yeah. it was like things I had never seen before. And I don't know how it is for you, but like, and I'm not calling anybody out by name either, obviously, but there are definitely like some people that I, I came up with in hardcore that have some of these like kind of far right, almost like just beliefs that I like would never expect to come out of anybody. And I understand, like you said before, not wanting to vote for, you know, left or right. Like I, I personally, before this last election was always of the mindset of voting for a third party or independent. This election, I, for the same reasons as you chose to vote, for Biden. And, and, and like you, I don't feel any different now, obviously. And I don't know that I ever will. You know, right. I do have, I have Hispanic people in my family. My grandma was hundred percent Colombian, you know, so obviously a lot of that Trump shit hit home for me, but like you look at me and you see a white person, you know what I mean? So like, I, I feel I'm the same as you, like, um, with like the police thing, we've had a lot of, a lot of issues in Rochester with police in the last year. Uh, one of them was a national incident that yeah. everybody was aware of last year with Daniel Prude. And I went to a lot of those protests. And one thing that you mentioned that kept hitting home for me that was mentioned there and that I've talked to a lot of people about during and after that was the white privilege thing, you know? And like you, I kind of grew up like in a lower class like setting, but again, we were a white family. You know what I mean? There's just a lot of privileges that just come to us just because of the color of our skin that we don't realize until stuff like this starts to happen. Right. You know, and like the police brutality thing, like I'm someone who grew up listening to rap music. You know what I mean? So like I always listened to like NWA and, and even like KRS one, you know what I mean? So we heard, yeah. we, we knew about all this stuff back then. And like, obviously right. like being like hardcore and punk, like we knew about a lot of the issues that are going on. So now as, as Jay Galvin said on a, a previous episode of mine, you know, anybody who's, who's here now, welcome to the party. You know what I mean? Like, right. We're all been well aware. It, but what's mind blowing to me is bands. Um, that I've always looked up to just being absurd and just being QAnon members and followers. And I don't mind calling people out by name. Fuck dude. Burn is one of my favorite hardcore bands, but fuck them. You know, I, 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 I had to unfollow people, but you know, for a person that tours on the regular, and that's how they support themselves, whether it's older bands like Madball or, or Terror or Agnostic Front. Like, you know, it sucks that they're in situations or could be in situations like that where their money's tight because, because of not touring. It's, it's awful. But to think or to say that it's fake is, is just completely surreal. There's a whole subsect. And again, I don't want to get too deep into it. And, I don't, I don't care if you want to name names. I'm still going to kind of keep it anonymous. Um, <laughs> I, I, they might, you know, people can figure out who it was. I saw people talking about having played a show and not caring about COVID bands that I don't personally care about and aren't really well known. I'm not going to mention their names here. It's just, it, it's just crazy to me that 
if you don't believe this is real, that's fine. But like, what about the people that do believe it's real? What about the people like my sister and my girlfriend's mom that like have compromised immune systems because you know what I mean? Of previous issues that like my sister got vaccinated today, luckily, you know what I mean? Like, but like she's been pretty much in her apartment for one full year, like not doing anything, you know? And then it's, would have the audacity to like play a show because like it's not even like full-time bands it's just like small you know yeah there's some some bands that i see that are from like california that are playing shows and i'm just like what like first of all fuck your band second of all fuck you like you're, you're just being it, it, it's just being so selfish that you think that your band is so fucking important that you got to play a show and you know it's it's bullshit and it's like i said it sucks i want shows to be back just as bad as everybody else i mean i've been going to shows pretty much nonstop since like late 1992 93 you know and i i want shows to be back i want to see bands i want to play shows but i'm not going to risk people's safety and my life and my family or my you know somebody's grandparent that gets sick because maybe i have it and it's really mild and I give it to you and it's really mild, but your grandparent get it and then they die. You know, like the selfishness is just this me first attitude that is so prevalent in America shouldn't be prevalent in hardcore and punk. You, you're supposed to be thinking about your friends and the scene and, and people that are, can't speak for themselves or, or that, you know, can't stand up for themselves. Like we're supposed to be looking out for one another and, if putting a, a, a mask on your face to go to the grocery store is too much to ask, then you're in the wrong place. No, I agree. And my whole thing, and again, I wasn't talking about full-time bands that have been playing shows. And I don't think you were either, but just to kind of play devil's advocate. And again, I don't agree, but I can kind of understand. Like, I don't, I, I guess I don't understand a bad word, but you know what I mean? Like I can see why some of these people would get so upset. Cause obviously their livelihood has been taken away for a year and aside from like a couple shirt sales and maybe like a live stream, they've made no money. But like some of these people post like about shit that's like unfounded, like from like news sites that like are legitimate fake news and like talking about like fake cures for COVID. And I'm like, this is insane. Like how, like, like what, like I understand, again, I understand being locked up or, you know, not being able to do much for a full year and it, it just might like drive people crazy. But like, I, I totally get the don't follow mainstream media type of thing. That's fine. Like you want to question the government. Great. We all should question the government, you know? Yeah. But to think that some bullshit video that you saw on YouTube, that's telling you to, to drink bleach is that's what's going to cure COVID. I mean, come on. I, I didn't know that I'm surprised at how stupid people really are. And if, if you sit there and you tell me you're a Republican and you give me some valid reasons, awesome. That's great. I'm very, very glad. I'm glad we could have a conversation. But if, if you say something so absurd and I reply back with like, are you kidding me? Like, where are your sources? And then they reply back with like some screen grab of a meme of a picture that they took from 17 other people's Facebook page that talks about something so off out of the mind i'm just like it's just there's there's no reason for me to answer your answer back to you like it, i'm not going to waste my breath and you know if if anything 
I have a really good friend, Mike Conway, who's from Buffalo, who's been going to shows for as long as I have, who had a serious medical issue not too long ago. And um, him and I have always been super good friends, but over the past, I don't know, we'll say seven months, give or take, we've talked on the phone like once or twice a week for hours at a time. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to keep up with people and like their posts and tag them in an old photo and, and text them every once in a while. But that human connection sometimes is just needed. And if anything, this has shown me that, like, don't waste your time, you know, arguing with some fake bot on Facebook who's, or who's just posting something to get a rise out of people. Like, it's just, it's just not worth my time. And, you know, time, your, your time on this planet is so short and your time in the hardcore scene is so short and this band's existence is so short. Like don't waste your time on bullshit and don't waste your time on people who don't give a shit about you because you're just wasting your breath trying to appease somebody who doesn't give a fuck about you. Like, you know, this is the, this has really been a wake up call for not only the world, like the U S as a whole being a bunch of fucking spoiled me first assholes, but it's also that same thing in, in the punk and hardcore scene. Like I don't have time for your bullshit. Like, you know, get the fuck out of here. Let me talk to my friends that actually care about me and who call me up and ask me like, how are you doing? Like, how's your family doing? Like that's the type of shit that's most important. To kind of totally shift gears back into the hardcore conversation. Um, one thing that I hadn't really mentioned to you, and I don't think you've really mentioned it in this interview, but it says on your Instagram, uh, still straight edge, right? Yeah, fuck yeah. True so, till death. Maybe you've heard of the statement, true till death, fucking sellouts. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those sellouts. Um, and, that's, and, that's, and that's an interesting part of the, the conversation, which again, we could have a whole fucking six hour long topic on this, I'm certain. Um, but as you know, in, in the past, I've had issues with, with definitely with alcohol and, and somewhat drugs and you having toured with bands and now living in Las Vegas, like for me, it would be impossible to, well, I don't want to say impossible cause I, I can do it now having children, but you know what I mean? Like, right. How, how, how do you, how do you keep, how did you keep the straight edge? Like, is it just something that's so important to you that it doesn't really, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've always been uh the 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 designated driver of my cruise when i when i was especially in buffalo um when i was with friends some of which were no longer straight edge or were and if if you were straight edge and you're not straight edge anymore okay fine that's cool i'm not going to i'm not a 19 year old i'm not going to block you on instagram um but you know I drank a couple of times when I was really young and like nothing happened. Like I've never been drunk. I've never been high. Um, but whenever I would go out with friends who were drunk, like I would be just as crazy as them when it came to just being loud and rowdy and doing stupid shit. So I always thought to myself, if I do this sober, what the fuck would I do if I was drunk? Like I'm afraid of what would happen if I was drunk you know, doing stuff with friends and like, they would be like, is this a good idea or a bad idea? And I would be like, that's a bad idea. Let's, let's, let's ease back on this fight that we're about to get into or whatever. So I think that being that, you know, voice of reason um, kind of helped me and just to, to keep it that way. Like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I honestly don't know what type of person I would be if I started drinking or doing drugs. I could be dead. I could be in jail. I don't know. But I, I know that, you know, 
I know well enough my own self that it's my best in my best interest to to stay away from those things. And I have at this point in time of my age, like, why am I going to start drinking now? Like shit. I get, I, I, I'm tired at nine o'clock at night and I get indigestion if I drink too much coffee. Like wh- what would happen if I woke up with a hangover? Like I, I couldn't function on that. Like, so it's just one of those not for me type of things. And, um, as a, as a, I have a lot of friends who, who were straight edge. Some of them are still, some, most of them aren't anymore. And I just never want to be that dude with like straight edge tattoos that sold out. Like I just find that to be disrespectful like if you're a straight edge and you were and you're not anymore that's cool but in my opinion like probably cover that tattoo up or or get rid of that t-shirt that you have that says straight edge like it's just you know yeah i have much respect for people that are still straight edge and people that you know are young doing it i think most people that do it are as you kind of referenced would definitely have uh addiction issues like if they weren't straight edge like 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 for, for me example i've definitely quit drinking and or smoking weed like a couple handfuls of times since i've started you know i don't drink anymore the 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 thing is though like is it's 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 hard to really explain unless you've done you know, you know like you're saying you only drank like a couple times like i i kind of wish i had the same i could say the same you know what i mean but it's one of those things where the 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 fixation you know what i mean it's definitely there right and as a person who worked in in sports betting and still am a sports better like i i know that rush of of winning a bet and lose and that pain of losing a bet and when i was working in the casinos it was awesome because i was feeling that rush of millions of dollars changing hands but it was never my money so it didn't affect me um but I've bet on games where I've bet a bunch of money and lost and I've been pissed off and angry and shitty the next day or the whole, you know, three days later. So I still understand that rush of the excitement of, of the chase, you know, whether that's a, a betting on a game or, or buying booze when you're not old enough or trying to score drugs or whatever that is. Like I, I get that feeling. I know it you know, but now I get it from like buying a new golf club (laughs) or, or, you know, getting a new bicycle and going to a skate park and riding around. Like I still get it. And I'm, I'm sure as hell not implying that I'm some holier than thou straight edge person because I'm nowhere near perfect. But, um, I know that my, that my, uh, life and the way that I live and the way that I am, that, that that's definitely the best choice for me. And, you know, whether that, you know, at 10 o'clock at night when I'm craving ice cream, like it's hard to, to not eat ice cream, you know, because I want it. And once I, once it's in my head, like I'm, I'm having it. So I could only imagine if that, instead of it being ice cream, it was like, you know, crack or, or Coke or, or whatever it is. And, you know, so I'm just lucky that I never, you know, really got too, too far gone. Yeah, I always avoided uh, anything, you know, really hard substances because I knew, you know, of the issues. But I definitely, like, the, the whole thing you're talking about, like, with the gambling and the rush and the chase, like, I never realized until I got older. And actually, another thing kind of referencing rap, it was an Action Bronson interview. And he mentioned, like, that's one of the best parts about, like, like weed and drugs is, is actually the chase and, like, going to get it. I never really thought about it until I heard him, like, articulate it like that. And I was like, that is, like as 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 good as getting high it's just going you know what i mean and it sounds stupid but it like 
thinking about it at the time i was like that makes perfect sense you know because like when you don't have it you want it you know and then when you have it you're just like why the fuck did i just kind of kind of wrapping things up a little bit um a good friend of the podcast uh rob antonucci um kind of put this uh staple into the podcast now uh kind of doing like a mount rushmore for your particular city so you being from buffalo um like who would you put on like a buffalo hardcore mount rushmore or just buffalo music mount rushmore i guess even yeah, you 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 sent that to me, and I was like, "Wow, I'm glad you sent it to me in advance because I've had a couple of people that have just sprung questions on me, and I'm just like, I'm not prepared for this. Like, you got to give me some time." Um, so I made a little list. Um, you you said Buffalo hardcore, so we can't say Buffalo music now because the Google Goo Dolls are it. That's it. The end of discussion. So I'm gonna go back and just stick to hardcore. Um, it was tough. I have a list. I'm going to start with first with my um, honorable mentions. Uh, Jeremy Smith of many, 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 many uh, hardcore bands, uh, most notably uh, Dead Hearts, um, Half Mass, Nevermore, Plagued with Rage, Fat Boy. The list goes on and on. Uh, now playing in uh, Northern California in a band called Tuning that is fucking awesome. Uh, we played with them in Oakland uh, when we were playing on tour. Um, cool guy nick baron third party records uh half mast awesome dude um just a dude who you know is just really sincere always been super sincere booked drago on a veggie fest uh just just a great guy um mike jeffers uh plays in a thousand bands also is the gatekeeper i believe of the practice spaces at discovery records uh, and Doug White is one of my other honorable mention. Um, so many bands recorded at Watchman Studios. Uh, I've recorded two, maybe three times at his first studio, which was in his parents' basement. Uh, and then a couple of times in uh, his new studio, where it's now in, in Lockport. Those are my honorable mentions. Now on to the dun, 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 Buffalo Hardcore Mount Rushmore, as discussed by Joel Staniszewski. Number one, uh, Scott Vogel. You got to put Vogel up there, right? Um, my, uh, my sister went to uh, Sacred Heart High School, and she was friends with a girl who was dating Scott Vogel at the time. This was like 93, we'll say. And uh, my, I was like begging my sister, like, give, here's the $4. Get, I'm going to give it to you. You give it to her. She gives it to Scott. I want to buy the Slugfest demo. And she was like, okay. So it was like one of those things that he was just like, you know, this God of hardcore. And I'm sure he would never accept that title. Um, but I've known him for a super long time. We lived together for a brief stint. Uh, super rad dude. Um, Slugfest, huge influential band. Despair. Uh, Buried Alive, like I said, probably one of my favorite hardcore bands. All those guys, him, uh, Sprig, Joe, Matt. Jesse, awesome dudes. Um, love those guys. Love the band. Scott Vogel, number one. He is the, uh, I don't know who's really on Mount Rushmore, but he's number one. He's in the number one spot for sure. Um, and I want to be like little different areas of Buffalo hardcore. Next person, uh, Joe Garlip. Uh, Joe Garlip was, is extremely influential for me. Um, I've known Joe since, I don't know, I was 10 years old. Uh, we lived right by each other. His parents, I think still live right by my parents um, would get me in, get me tapes of bands 
um, introduce me to bands and just show me demos of bands and copies of Judge and Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, Seven Seconds, just these bands that were became such a huge part of my life and also played in awesome bands, Fade Away, Envy, Despair, uh, now plays in World Be Free, Rad Dude. Uh, Jen, the owner of Home of the Hits. Um, Home of the Hits was the greatest place a young hardcore punker dude could ever go to. Um, living in Sloan, we would have to get all the way down Elmwood Avenue and we would do it as much as we could. And I would just buy random records because of how the cover looked. Like that looks cool. Judge New York crew, Youth of Today, uh, Envy, um, or whatever that record's called, Modern Love Story. Is that what it's called? I don't know. Uh, Inside Out. All these bands, I would just buy these records because of how they looked. Or anybody who worked there, uh, Bill Farside, Daryl Taberski, uh, EVR, all those workers that were always cool that would be like, oh, you like this band? Check this out. Okay, cool. And they would just have anything and everything you could ever want of, of punk and hardcore um, records, t-shirts, fl- you'd see flyers for shows, anything and everything you would ever need to keep the scene alive. And speaking of keeping the scene alive, fourth and final member of the Buffalo Hardcore Mount Rushmore, Chris Ring. Um, <clears throat> Chris Ring and I uh, have known each other for a super long time. We went to high school together. We lived together for quite a long time. Um, him booking all these shows uh, is a is a huge help, and I know he does a lot more than just hardcore. Um, you know, a lot of other bands and a lot of other music, but but um, a person who who does truly care about music and and keeping the scene alive, keeping it flourishing, keeping it safe, and helping out bands uh, along the way. Oh, that's definitely the most well-researched uh, Mount Rushmore that anyone's done yes. for me so far. And I mean, obviously I'd agree with all those and, and the Chris Ring thing. I, I think you might be the first one to put him on. I feel like one other person might have, but hundred percent agree though. I mean, he's, you know, I interviewed him in the beginning stages of this podcast and I'm glad I'm proud, I guess, to say I was the first person to give him, have him on a podcast. Um, and just picking his brain, like you said, like he's just a, a really good dude and has done a lot a lot of different stuff, not just in Buffalo too, like all over the place. Like you referenced earlier in the episode, I, I totally forgot he had been doing that thing in New Jersey around that period. Yeah. So the dude's done a lot of shit and he's, you know, a good dude. So um, before I ask for like closing comments and stuff, is there anything that we didn't touch on uh, in this little closing, uh, getting close to two hour long uh, conversation? <laughs> no, I, I think that's, uh, I think we got everything right. I know we got everything that was on my end. I just, I didn't know if there was anything that, you know, you, you, you know, had, had on your mind or anything. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, closing comments and anything you want to plug, obviously the record and stuff like that. Yeah. The end of everything is uh, my baby. I, I love it. I, I, you know, I put so much time, uh, not just me, but my bandmates and I put so much time and effort and our heart and soul into these songs and into this record. And we do, we put everything uh, into it. We, we, we dissected every possible thing when it came to this record, the cover art, the, the vinyl variants, the song structures, what song goes where and why the samples, everything um, to, to make sure it's a 100% full and complete product 
uh, from start to finish. And uh, we're so excited and happy as how it came out. So check out um, the end of everything. Things are about to change. War Against Records. Uh, check us out on Instagram, the end of everything 702, which is the area code for Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's our, it's like, you know, I just had so much fun doing it. I get to, to scream. I get to, you know, tell people to break it down. <laughs> I get to do everything that I always wanted to do in a band and always want to even play in a band. I just, you know, heavy stuff. And to be able to, to put out a product that we're all super happy with is awesome. Anything else you want to add or you want to leave it at that? I mean, that's awesome, right? Hardcore. Hardcore is alive and well. We might be in a pandemic, but hardcore will fucking live forever. So whether you're a, a, a first timer going to your first show post pandemic, or you've been to going to shows for 30 years, like this is the same hardcore that we all fell in love with whenever that was. And uh, keep that same flame burning on. If it's, uh, you know, your first show or your 500th show, like hardcore is an important thing. And the, the friends that you have from music, because it's such a, such an important part of our lives, the artistic side of it, the friends that you make because of this are friends that will be with you forever. And remember that and tell your friends that you love them because there's going to come a time where you're not going to see them, whether it's because they're on the other side of the country or because you've lost them, you know, don't, um, don't take anything for granted. Tell your friends you love them. I think that's a good way to end this episode. Uh, thanks everybody for checking out episode 29. Thanks to Joel for doing the interview. Uh, as always, thanks to Rob Antonucci and Greg Van Wall for all the support. Uh, thanks to my family. Uh, I'll have another episode real soon. Check us out on the web at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com. See everyone real soon and stay safe.